Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Thank you for being here. Today, Dr. Douglas Petrovich continues to share the evidence that he has found that affirms Scripture's record of the Israelites' time in Egypt. And James Collins looks at what the Bible says about life on other planets. Watchmen on the Wall is here each day to bring clarity to the chaos. One of the ways we do that is through the Prophecy in the News magazine. Each issue is packed full of timely articles that inform and encourage us to keep looking up to Christ's soon return. Subscribe today to the Prophecy in the News magazine and receive a print and digital version of the magazine and a subscription to our online streaming platform, FaithNet TV. Subscribe today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also subscribe to the Prophecy in the News magazine on our website. Visit swrc.com. Dr. Douglas Petrovich returns now to continue laying out the historical events and archaeological artifacts that affirm what the Bible states about the origins of the Hebrews. Dr. Douglas Petrovich was with us in our previous program. He is a professor of biblical history and exegesis at the Bible Seminary in Houston, and he's done a tremendous amount of research into the ancient world of the Bible, and especially in the book of Exodus and other issues, the names of people, the names of places in Egypt. And he's come up with some amazing evidence and proof that everything that we read in God's blessed word in the book of Exodus is historical and factual and actually happened. And friends, of course, you know we're losing so many of our kids today because their teachers in university and college are saying this is all a lot of mythology. We've got something better. We'll allow man to invent how to live. The Ten Commandments, all of that, that's nonsense. It never happened. It's not historical. Well, Dr. Petrovich has done so much research that gives us, gives parents, gives young people an opportunity to study and to refute the gainsayers, as we read in the King James Bible. So, Douglas, so good to have you with us once again. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be back with you and your audience. What evidence is there of a seven-year famine in Egypt that could have been so decimating to the Egyptians? Now, that's pretty important. Is there evidence for that? Sure. One of the big areas of evidence relates to the societal change that took place in Egypt, right? Because it says that as the famine became more severe over the the period of years, that Joseph, first of all, bought the possessions of the Egyptians and essentially put them in the coffers of the pharaoh, the king. And then it says that they had to sell their land, their livestock, and everything connected to how they would you know, make a living there, sold that over to the Pharaoh. That still wasn't enough. They still became poor. It became, the famine increased and it became more difficult to survive and to earn a livelihood. So they had to sell themselves. And that's a tremendous societal change. I don't know if we can even fathom what that would have looked like. I think that's undersold even in our own minds. So, If that were to take place, then there should be some kind of evidence for it. Well, oddly enough, Larry, there was an institution in Egypt called the Nomarchy. 
the best way to understand that in the United States of America is to compare it to governorship, right? We have 50 states and each state has a governor, right? And then we have a national leader too. We have the president of the United States, whether Democrat, Republican, you know, Whig or whatever party, we have a president. And so there's national leadership and there's local leadership with the governor in each state. And there kind of is this balance between the two, right? And always one side wants to be heavier, stronger than the other. And we see this in political events all the time. There's this jousting for power and control. And the same thing happened in ancient Egypt with the nomarchs who were in charge of various gnomes in Egypt. There were up to, I think, 42 or so gnomes at one point in Egypt. So every area in Egypt had its gnome, right? And there was a nomarch who was in charge, this governor, and he was wealthy usually. And there was this interplay between the king and, and the governor who was going to be more powerful. And going into the 12th dynasty, and that's the time period of Joseph's life, going into that dynasty, the Egyptians were coming out of what's called an intermediate period when there was a vacuum. There was no central authority. If there was a crown, if there was a king, he was extremely weak. Sometimes, you know, in intermediate periods, there were multiple monarchies going on in various places in Egypt. But the bottom line is the central authority was weak. And when that happens, the governors are enjoying it all, right? Because they are extremely powerful. And the 12th dynasty, all of a sudden something happens. Going up to this point from the last intermediate period until Joseph's lifetime, the kings were trying to regain their footing and to have more power and to outdo the governors. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't pull this off as hard as they tried. And then all of a sudden, on a dime, during the reign of Sesostris III, who is who? The famine pharaoh. Every Egyptologist who knows the Middle Kingdom will tell you. There was a major socio-political change, an upheaval. The entire institution of the nomarchy fell away. All of a sudden, how did that happen? Can you imagine, Larry, that all of a sudden, today in the United States, that all 50 governors stop becoming governor and there's no further governor in any of the states and there's no record of it anywhere what happened to all of those governors, right? Let's go 40, 50 years into the future and we look back and we say, wow, that happened 40 or 50 years ago. We have no idea how it happened, right? What chance is there? What could happen in society that you'd have no record of the other political institution that's hand-in-hand -hand operating with the monarchy. So that's what happened in Egypt. It just disappears. And now these former nomarchs, they're no longer building tombs. They're no longer wealthy. They're no longer there and buried. And so this is the kind of evidence to demonstrate that the seven-year famine is true because it shows a societal upheaval. And you can also see this in sites like Rikad where there was a cemetery for the wealthy. It's called Cemetery A. And Cemetery B is kind of for the average person or the... They didn't really have a middle class, but it was, you know, the, the poor. But in Cemetery A, they would have these really fancy, deep, rock-cut shaft tombs that took an amazing amount of work to carve out of the stone. And these were used to bury the elite and the wealthy. And all of a sudden, Larry... Right in the middle of the 12th dynasty, around the transition from Sesostris III to Amenemkat III, Cemetery A basically goes out of service. And some of these rock-cut tombs stopped being built 
right? Stopped being built, which means the wealthy of the city were no longer wealthy and able to pay to have their tombs finished so they could be buried there. And you know how important that is to the ancient Egyptians. Everything is rooted in the afterlife for them. So now they don't have tombs to be buried in because they're not finished. Where did they go? Where were these people buried? Well, of course, the Bible says that the people of Egypt who sold themselves to Pharaoh were dispersed throughout the land of Egypt. So all of a sudden, on a dime, they become poor and off they go. And the rock-cut shaft tombs stop being built. And that's the exact time that it occurs. We're having the uh, so-called coronavirus pandemic, and the effects on the world have been very draconian. But compared to what you're talking about, it would be like all of a sudden, no more TVs, no more cell phones, iPhone 6, no more laptops or anything of the sort. So the extent of this, and of course a famine, you know, you can't eat, no food, things of that sort. I'm just amazed. I can tell you one thing. I'm going to reread the book of Exodus once again and look at all these details. It's going to be so fascinating. We are visiting with Dr. Douglas Petrovich. He is the author of Origin of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. Now, why do you argue in your book that the Hebrews were oppressed and enslaved for only 114 years? It goes back to a few things. Number one, most English translations pretty much across the board leave Genesis 15:13 a little bit unclear as to what's intended there. In Genesis 15:13, this is when God is speaking to Abram prophetically, talking about in the future, talking about his prodigy, those who, who come after him. It says that they are going to be in a foreign land and that they're going to be serving the people in this foreign land where they go. And it says they're going to be oppressed and afflicted, right? So it says those three things. And then it says for a period of 400 years. And that's a rough term that's used there. And in the entire context of Genesis 15, there are rough terms, right? This term that in most of our Bibles we have the the fourth generation, that's a rough term because God wasn't prophetically giving the year and day to, to the nth degree right on the day. We find that number in Exodus 12, 40 and 43, where it says that the period of time that the Israelites were in Egypt was 430 years, and then it says to the very day. So that's extremely specific and precise. So this ballpark 400 years is just a prophetic range, right? That's the closest round number looking at centuries. It's 400 years or so. But the issue I want to get at is that last statement is usually connected in people's minds to just the oppression and affliction. But that's not the way it's supposed to be understood. It's all three of those events is around 400 years, right? So that's first. And then there's a statement in Genesis 47, 27, I believe it is, that talks of the wealth and the affluence that Jacob and Joseph's family experienced in Egypt, right? So that had to go on for some period of time. And you can't be a slave and be extremely wealthy. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the world works. So there had to be a period of abundance, not just the seven years of the, you know, before the famine, but there had to be a time of blessing and abundance that Israel and the Israelites experienced as they grew into a great nation in Egypt. And then when it says that a pharaoh in Exodus 1.8, it says that a pharaoh or a king, the word pharaoh, doesn't show up in Egyptian terms until the reign of Thutmose III, who was the pharaoh that chased Moses out of the Exodus. But anyway, the pharaoh who arose that did not know of Joseph, who is he? 
Well, all of the kings and all of the dynasties going forward in time would have known exactly who Joseph was all the way through the period of the Hyksos invasion when the foreign Asiatics came and they lived right next door to the Israelites in Avaris. That became their capital city. So probably Israelites were working for them in various capacities when they took over and became their own dynasty. That's the 15th dynasty. So all of the Hyksos kings would have known exactly who Joseph was, right? Well, then all of a sudden you have this pushback from native Egyptians in the south, which is Upper Egypt. That's the 17th dynasty. Their capital city was Thebes. And they were pushing northward as the Nile flows and trying to obtain more and more of the territory that the Hyksos had conquered and and taken. And they did that. They succeeded. And they made their way all the way to Avaris. And it took decades for this to happen, mainly under Kamosa and then Amosa after him. And Amosa is the final king of the 17th dynasty. And he invades Avaris. He kills the bulk of the army of the Hyksos. And the survivors flee to the southern Levant, to Canaan a site called Sharuhen. And ancient Egyptian historians tell us that they lived there for three years. They shacked up at Sharuhen, and then the Egyptians attacked them after three years and wiped them out. But when the Egyptians first captured Avaris and chased out the surviving Hyksos, and they took over the Hyksos former capital city, well, who would have been there, you know, on every block? The Israelites, who didn't pick up swords to attack them. They had pitchforks and, you know, the tools of a farmer. So the Israelites were just innocent people there. But of course, the Bible says they were growing and growing and growing exponentially, numerically. So all of a sudden, the decimated Egyptians, right? Remember, after decades of warfare, they were physically decimated. Their numbers had dwindled. They look around and they say, wow, the Israelites, they outnumber us. And what happens if they join themselves, as the Bible says, to our enemies who are their enemies? The Hyksos who are surviving at Sharuhen. If the Israelites leave and go to them, now the warring Hyksos will put swords in their hands and knives in their hands and bows in their hands and teach them how to use them, and they'll all come back and invade, and they'll take us over. They'll conquer us. So what do we do? Let's make them slaves, right? So this was a king who did not know of Joseph because his whole dynasty was spawned in the opposite part of Egypt, and it makes perfect sense historically. And this, of course, leads to the birth of Moses in 1526. Well, this leads me to a question that's not really on our agenda, but I think it's very important, especially it came to mind when we were talking about Genesis 15:13. What effect should archaeology have on Bible translation. I mean, we believe the Word of God is inerrant, it's inspired, and yet there's some things we don't know about the original language, about the customs. Share with us a little bit, because I know some people, they get stuck in one translation, and I love a lot of translation, because the more I read, the more I see there's different nuances. A lot of this stuff is very nuanced, and there are so many other things impinging upon it. Tell me a little bit about the connection here between archaeology, biblical studies, done by men and women like yourself who love Jesus, who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, who believe that it's divinely inspired, and yet we understand there's a lot of things that we don't yet understand. Sure. Great question, and I'm glad you asked it. I would call myself, Larry, an interdisciplinarian. What does that mean? It means I have a lot of different tools in my tool bag, right? 
I have two master's degrees in biblical studies, mainly biblical languages. I've taught all levels of Hebrew, all levels of Greek. I could teach Aramaic. I then went on and studied Middle and Late Egyptian. I could teach Egyptian hieroglyphics. I've studied archaeology. I've studied history. So what I've tried to do is become as deeply rooted as I can in as many broad fields. The more you have multiple fields working together, all of a sudden light bulbs can come on. So one of the dirty secrets in biblical archaeology, for those of us who have strong training in the biblical languages, is we can learn things from archaeology that cause us to ask questions, to say, have we translated, for example, this certain phrase in this certain Bible verse correctly? Or is there a better way from what we know? Let me give you an example. When I did my research first on the Exodus Pharaoh, I found out that Amenhotep II lived beyond the time period when the Exodus happened. He lived, what is it, seven, I forget now, 17 years or something. He lived years after the Exodus took place, and that didn't make sense to me. Why? Because growing up in Sunday school, Larry, I was taught by my teachers that the Exodus Pharaoh died with his army in the sea. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, as someone who has strong training in the biblical languages and discovering this with ancient history and archaeology, all of a sudden I have to ask the question, wait a minute, is my Sunday school understanding of this correct? So I went back to the Hebrew Bible, to the passages where it speaks of what God did to Pharaoh, and it uses this term that's a verb in Hebrew that means shook off. It's used of what God does to the Egyptians. It's like he shakes off a locust from your shoulder, right? Just brushes it off and off it goes. That same term is used by David, and it says that he, David, speaking of himself, was shook off, right? In all of these afflictions that he went through. Well, what does that mean? Is David saying of himself that he was killed? No. David's not saying I was killed. He's saying I was shook off like a locust on a shoulder, right? I'm just knocked right off because that's how severe these trials are that I'm going through and these attacks I'm getting from Saul and his army and so forth. So that term is not a term that means destroyed or killed. It means shaken off like a locust, and that's how it's used in the Bible too. That caused me to understand, oh my, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't actually teach that he died with his army in the Sea of Reeds, or if you like the Red Sea, but it really is literally the Sea of Reeds. Wow, so maybe we got it all wrong in Sunday school and we need to kind of improve our understanding. And that's what archaeology can do for us, Larry. Yeah, and you know, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you want to know what it really says. And you don't want to, you know, carry around any myths or erroneous notions. Well, Douglas, I'm just so excited about this. I really appreciate your love for Jesus, for the Bible, and for careful scholarship. God bless you richly. Thank you so much, Larry. Outstanding information. Get your own CD copy of the complete two-day presentation from Dr. Petrovich on the origins of the Hebrews when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Our featured resource today is Dr. Petrovich's brand new book, Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. This 314-page hardback book carefully examines the evidence that attests to the presence of Israelites 
in Egypt. Get this outstanding book and use the information inside its pages to refute the deniers of God's Word. Order your copy of Origins of the Hebrews today by calling toll-free 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Have you ever wondered if we're alone in the universe? Is there life on other planets? Staff evangelist James Collins looks at what the Bible says about this interesting topic. The Bible says in Psalm 19:1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. There are 1.6 million species of fungi, 10,000 species of ants, 300,000 species of flowers, 5,000 species of mammals, and 10,000 species of birds. However, these numbers pale in significance when compared with the stars in the heavens. There are more than 100 billion galaxies. That's 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Yes, indeed. The heavens do declare the glory of God. With over a hundred billion galaxies, people often ask the question, is there life on other planets? Though I can't be dogmatic about it, it seems to me that there are several good reasons to point to the likelihood of there being no intelligent life on other planets. First, even though atheists would scoff at this, the Bible says that Earth is central and gives no hint that life exists elsewhere. Relatively speaking, the Earth is but an astronomical atom among all of the constellations. Earth is only a tiny speck of dust among the oceans of stars and planets in the universe. The Earth is only one of many planets in our small solar system, all of which orbit around the sun. But Earth is nevertheless the center of God's work of salvation in the universe. It was on the Earth where the Son of God became a man. It was on the earth where the cross of the Redeemer of the universe stood. And it will be on the earth, although it will be a new earth, but still the earth, where according to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the throne of God and the Lamb will someday be. The centrality of the earth is also evident in the biblical account of creation. God created the earth before he created the rest of the planets and stars. I think one reason God did that was to emphasize the importance of the earth among everything else in the universe. The earth is unique in God's eternal purposes. You may be asking, why would God create such a vast universe of stars and galaxies if he did not intend to populate them? Well, Psalm 19.1 gives us the answer. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sheer vastness of the physical universe points us to the greater vastness and infinity of God himself. Now, you're probably asking, what about all the UFO sightings that have been reported? Well, I don't deny that many UFO sightings are real. However, I'm not convinced that they're driven by aliens from other planets. Many UFO sightings are actually experimental aircraft. As a career military officer, I know this for a fact to be true. 
Some sightings have natural explanations such as weather or atmospheric lights, and some UFO sightings are, in fact, deliberate hoaxes. But I think most UFO sightings are demonic. I don't believe aliens come from outer space, but instead they are from other demonic dimensions. I believe a case can be made that those UFOs that remain truly unidentified, and especially those that make contact or communicate to humans, are rooted in the work of the devil. The so-called aliens communicate messages that go against biblical Christianity. The visitors are in tune with New Age, Eastern mysticism, astral projection, and so on. At the very least, they are more interested in steering us away from the truth of the Bible and not toward it. In each instance where the name of Jesus was spoken, the devils, I mean the aliens, fled. Experts who have investigated UFOs have noted a strong similarity between the UFO experience and typical manifestations of demonism. John Keel, a respected authority on UFOs, said the UFO manifestations seem to be, by and large, merely minor variations of the age-old demonic phenomenon. Now, I have interviewed many experts on the subject of UFOs, including Mag Dominic, Pastor Billy Crone, and Pastor Mike Hoggard. These experts all believe that UFOs are manifestations of Satan or demons. Some even teach that the UFOs are alive. One expert said, I have come to suspect that in some instances, what we may have been calling spaceships may actually be a form of higher intelligence rather than vehicles transporting occupants. Likewise, Pastor Mike Hoggard said in a recent interview, over and over again, witnesses have told me, you know, I don't think that thing I saw was mechanical at all. I got the distinct impression that it was alive. Jesus clearly warned about religious deception in the last days. Jesus warned that many would turn away from the faith and there would be many false prophets who would deceive many people. Jesus warned that these false prophets come to us in sheep's clothing but are really ferocious wolves. Is it possible, could it be, that the so-called extraterrestrials seek to appear as caring, loving brothers, but in fact are ferocious demonic wolves who seek to lead us astray. The Apostle Paul also warned that Satan and his demons masquerade themselves as angels of light. Appearances can be deceiving. That is why you and I should anchor ourselves in the absolute Word of God. This is James Collins reminding you that the Bible says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Dr. Petrovich's brand new book, Origins of the Hebrews, New Evidence of Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus, is available now. This 314-page hardback book carefully examines the evidence that attests to the presence of Israelites in Egypt. Get this outstanding book and use the information inside its pages to refute the deniers of God's Word. Order your copy of Origins of the Hebrews today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order Origins of the Hebrews online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. 
Tomorrow, James Collins reveals ancient mysteries of hope for today's dark world. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Thank you.